This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the last program of The Conspiracy Show for 2009. I apologize in advance for the scratchy voice. Everybody knows. The, uh, the twins have been incubating uh, something for uh, about two weeks and uh, mutating it and then passing it on to uh, dad. And um, I don't need to tell parents this. You're never sicker than, uh, than af- once you have children. Uh, they are uh, veritable uh, germ bags, aren't they? But they are uh, delicious uh, nonetheless, especially at Christmas. It was, I-, I hope you had a wonderful uh, Christmas time. Our, uh, our boys certainly did. Uh, replete with uh, toy, uh, sort of robotic puppies and, and rocket ships uh, and uh, more chocolate uh, than I care to uh, admit. <laughs> anyway, we are uh, going to uh, usher out the, uh, the old year with, I think, what happened, what, what promises to be a remarkable uh, program. I came to, uh, to the airwaves here at AM740 with a simple mandate, and that was uh, to bring you the most amazing stories you'll hear anywhere on radio and the most amazing guests, and I think we've succeeded on both counts uh, tonight. We're going to speak momentarily with a pioneer in the field of time travel. Not theoretical time travel, but a gentleman who was involved in a secret U.S. program involving actual time travel and teleportation. Uh, first, let me give you a heads up. What's uh, coming up on the program next week, which will be our first show of 2010. And this also, I think, promises to be a pretty a compelling two hours of radio. There will be a gentleman in studio next week 
will be laying flat on his back on a massage table in this very studio, undergoing a hypnotic regression. I've done past life regressions on the program uh, a number of times uh, in its various incarnations over the years, and they've all been remarkable and very successful. Uh, and, and, and we've allowed you to actually witness on the air someone experiencing what appears to be an actual uh, past life. Uh, this is going to be a little different. This gentleman has long suspected to be uh, that he is a victim of alien abduction, multiple alien abductions, going back to childhood, and is very uh, keen to find out uh, some details about that and, and to confirm his suspicion. And uh, so he'll be in studio uh, for the full two hours, along with a past life regression therapist, uh, Deborah Sky King. Again, we're not going to uh, investigate his past life. We're going to try and find out whether, in fact, he has been the victim of an alien abduction. I cautioned him uh, many times before he agreed to come on and do this, and that was you may not find out, or you may not like what you find out. And uh, very briefly, the following Sunday, this is one uh, you mar- you, you'll, you'll want to uh, mark down on the calendar, Sunday, January the 10th, in this studio, we'll, uh, we'll do a two-hour debate on whether the World Trade Center buildings were brought down by controlled demolition during 9-11. Richard Gage from Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth uh, will be here, or will be on the phone, rather. Uh, and so, too, will a, uh, a demolitions expert, explosives expert. You could probably count on one hand... Uh, the number of people who know more in North America or probably the world about explosives than uh, Ron Craig. He's also a special effects artist from Hollywood. He'll be here uh, debating Richard Gage on uh, whether the the, uh, the World Trade Center buildings were brought down by controlled demolition. All right, that brings us to uh, tonight's program. Andrew D. Basago, Bashago, my apologies, Andrew Bashago is a lawyer in private practice in Washington State, a writer. He's been described as a 21st century visionary. He holds five academic degrees, including a BA in history from UCLA and a Master of Philosophy from the University of Cambridge. He's an emerging figure in the disclosure movement who's leading a campaign to lobby the United States government to disclose such controversial truths truths as the fact that Mars... Harbor's Life. We talked about that two weeks ago with Alfred Weber. And also that the United States has achieved quantum access to past and future events. He's been identified as the first of two major planetary whistleblowers predicted by Alta, the WebBot project that analyzes the content of the World Wide Web to discern future trends. His writings place him at the forefront of contemporary Mars research. His paper, The Discovery of Life on Mars, published in 2008, was the first work to prove that Mars is an inhabited planet. After publishing his landmark paper, Andy founded the Mars Anomaly Research Societies, one of America's time travel pioneers. In the late 60s and 70s, he was a child participant in the secret U.S. time-space program Project Pegasus, 
He was the first American child to teleport and took part in probes to past and future events utilizing different forms of time travel, then being researched and developed by DARPA. For 10 years, Andy has investigated his experiences in Project Pegasus on a quest to prove uh, to prove them and communicate them to others. In 2010, he'll publish a tell-all book that will describe his awe-inspiring and terrifying experience in Project Pegasus and the true story of the emergence of time travel in the U.S. defense community 40 years ago. Andrew uh, Bashego, welcome to The Conspiracy Show on AM740. Hi, Richard. Thank you for having me on your show. My pleasure, and thank you for uh, being so generous with your time uh, tonight. Well, well, it's a good way to end out uh, the year here uh, on the conspiracy show with really the ultimate conspiracy, which is the U.S. government's twenty—excuse uh, me, forty-year concealment of, of its quantum access capability. Let me just add one one other thing, and I've, I, I mentioned this on the on the program several weeks ago uh, when I was talking to a um, a noted UFO historian, Rich Dolan. And that is the, the uh, erudition of the, 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 the people that are coming forward uh, for disclosure. Uh, I mentioned that you have no fewer than five academic degrees. We, we spoke with your colleague, uh, Alfred Weber, on the program. Again, just impeccable credentials. Uh, and that, to me, is what is so uh, awe-inspiring about all this, is the... the uh, the, the sort of the tongue-in-cheek treatment of the mainstream media that uh, why do UFOs always present themselves to, uh, you know, some uh, hillbilly in the Ozarks or, or, or so forth. Nothing could be further from the truth. The people that are involved in the disclosure movement, the people that have had uh, genuine experiences, uh, to me, uh, I mean, y- your resume uh, speaks for itself. Uh, how did someone like, take us back uh, to the 1960s and, and how you got involved, first of all, with, with Project Pegasus. Well, my late father, Raymond Bashago, um, had worked uh, on a number of classified aerospace projects in the 1950s prior to my birth in 1961. I'm the youngest of five children. Uh, and my father, for example, had worked on um, actually a compartmentalized project, which was the Ramjet Engine Project at Curtis Wright, he had also worked on the B-70, which was the, uh, going to be the atomic equipped strategic bomber uh, for the U.S. Air Force. And so, um, you know, my dad had that background working in the classified research and development realm for the U.S. Defense Department. And uh, at a very young age, I was demonstrating non-ordinary abilities. I was doing things like walking down uh, into the carpentry shop that he maintained in our basement in, uh, of our home in New Jersey and completing his thoughts. He would be ruminating about something while he was working on a, some sort of woodworking project in the cellar, and I would walk down there as a, as a three- and four-year-old and start communicating with him in regard to what he was thinking about. Uh, another thing that happened was that um, as a three- or four-year-old, I had been watching my two older brothers build um, a kind of a, a, a skyscraper on the floor of our rec room in New Jersey you know, with their tinker toys. And I was sitting next to them with my alphabet blocks, wondering why they had to lay one piece atop another to build a construction like that. And so they knocked down their, what they were building and scampered out, out, outside, and I picked up the toys that they had been building with in my own alphabet blocks, and I suspended them in space. I didn't really levitate them. I just sort of caused them to hover. You and caused dad, them to hover? 
All right. I had a hundred percent belief that if I took, let's say, one of my alphabet blocks and held it three feet above the, the, the floor, it would stay there. And and they did. So that when my dad walked out of his carpentry shop in the basement, you know, with somebody possessing a bachelor's of science and electrical engineering from Lehigh, where he mostly uh, did work in um, engineering and physics and mathematics, my dad was astounded to see his his youngest son basically doing something that was defying the laws of physics. I was causing uh, my toys basically to levitate. And did you have actual memories of, of, of doing these things, or, or is this coming to you secondhand from your father or your brothers? No, I never, I never forgot that. It's actually one of my earliest memories, because my dad became exasperated when he called my mother and the toys fell to the ground, and I couldn't replicate the task. So I had apparently gotten into some kind of trance state when I was playing, sort of watching my brothers play, and very deep in thought, and I was able to do this because I believed that that's what should happen. You know, there's all this discussion now about the law of attraction and how our intent influences uh, our our destiny and certainly uh, the external environment. Well, I can vouch for the fact that as a small child, with 100% belief that my toys should just simply hover there above the floor of the rec room, they did. Um, and in fact, my dad didn't discuss that until I, shortly before his death in 1990. I was 28 years old before he even brought it up again. So no, that's that's a personal memory rather than uh, one that was reinforced uh, by my family members. Andrew, I'll get you to just uh, to hold on. We'll uh, we'll come back and uh, delve further into your childhood and involvement in Project Pegasus as we discuss or uh, uh, communicate with a time travel a pioneer, Andrew Bashago here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Get on up to the website, richardserrett.com. The last name is spelled S as in Simon, Y-R-E-T-T, richardserrett.com. And there you'll find uh, information on upcoming shows, past shows. You can also follow me on uh, Twitter. Andrew Bashago is with us, Project Pegasus, the president of the Mars Anomaly Research Society, a time travel pioneer. So your uh, unique... Uh, skills, talents as a young child, was that what directly led you into this uh, secret DARPA program? It may have been. Um, It's certainly a significant data point. Um, We know that um, in the late 1950s, Admiral Hyman Rickover had launched uh, a project called Project Talent, which was to identify young Americans of exceptional intellectual, psychic, or leadership uh, potential and, and ability. Uh, and I suspect that in light of uh, his, his prior and then ongoing work on different uh, classified defense projects, my dad may have passed uh, some of my special abilities on to the military. But, but, I, but I know that the request that I be attached to Project Pegasus apparently was, was made in an approach by the military to my father. Um, because in the summer after kindergarten for me, which was... I was in kindergarten uh, in New Jersey in 1966-67. I entered as a four-year-old. So I'm now five in the summer after kindergarten uh, in summer of 67. 
And my dad took me out to the general manufacturing company facility in Convent Station, New Jersey, uh, which had been the map-making uh, subsidiary of Standard Oil that had become the logistical map-making operation for the Allies during World War II. And it was just sort of an acclimation trip. We walked around. He showed me different rooms. And then when we were driving back to our, our home in Mars Plains, New Jersey, I said, Dad, why did you take me out there? And he said, the Army contacted me at work and, and, and instructed me to take you out there. You're going to be doing some very important things out there in several years. So I know that I was identified as a child who should be attached to Project Pegasus in kindergarten. And, and I was, for the most part, a five-year-old during most of that kindergarten year. Um, and then uh, during the 1967-68 time frame, I'm now in the first grade, uh, my dad drove me to the, uh, the Curtis Wright Aeronautical Company facility in Woodridge, New Jersey, which was a sprawling um, aerospace uh, development facility with different numbered buildings. And he was cleared through security at a kind of a desk there. I remember walking through uh, the Air Museum there that held about eight vintage airplanes of Glenn Curtis, uh, the famous uh, American aviator. And we entered Building 68. Uh, and in Building 68, there was a room about the size of a high school chemistry lab, just a very sparse room with linoleum, floor tiling, and, and, a, and a, a group of desks, you know, the chairs with, with the desks on them. And in the front of the room, there, were, there was a device. It basically consisted of two parentheses-shaped objects that were about 8 feet tall and about 10 feet apart on the ground. And my dad had the technician turn on the device. And when he did, an energy field, uh, kind of a curtain of shimmering light, uh, emanated between the two armatures of this device. Were they Tesla coils? Uh, they weren't Tesla coils. The, the two armatures looked more like modern stereo speakers. They were sort of light battleship gray and kind of smoothly designed, uh, freestanding on their own base. And on the interior of these two uh, parentheses or elliptical-shaped uh, objects were little light portals um, that were uh, kind of blue-green in color. And they were uh, emanating this field of shimmering light. The best uh, analogy I can cite would be let's say, a very well-executed public water sculpture, like some, in some of the city parks down in Texas, where water has been made to fall in a very beautiful and graceful way with a, uh, a very mesmerizing kind of shimmering effect. And if you stood about 10 feet away from this field of shimmering light, um, it just looked like an exquisite field of, of falling water. But if you walked up to it, let's say, about a foot away, and we were advised to be very cautious around it, um, you saw squiggles of light emanating from the blue-green portals that were these tiny little apertures that were about three inches apart uh, on the interior of, of the uh, elliptical object, you know, of the, of the armatures of, of the device. And then the, the, the energy itself looked more like a raster on a black-and-white television set, a kind of a black-and-white snow pattern. And my dad explained that he was going to hold my hand, and, you know, I'm, I'm six at this time. I'm a six-year-old. And it's, it's, it's hard for, even, for me to even get my mind around the fact of how young I really was when they brought me into the, the emergent time-space program uh, that would become Project Pegasus several years later. But my dad explained that he would hold my hand and we would jump through this field of light. 
And when we did, we would find ourselves sort of in a tunnel of light. And he said, it's, it's going to be kind of like going through the Lincoln Tunnel in New York when I've taken you to your grandparents uh, in Brooklyn, except we're not going to be in, any, in, in a car. And we may get separated in the tunnel. The tunnel may, may calve off into different spaces, but you'll find yourself ultimately on a hillside somewhere else in the country. And when we arrive there, just stay where you are because I'll look for you. And so he said, on the count of three, we're, son, we're just going to jump through this field of life. And we did a dress rehearsal or, or two, and then we did so. We, he held my hand, and on the count of three, we leapt basically into the U.S. time-space program. Uh, because when we jumped through the field of energy, I found myself in a very strange environment. I was in a field of illuminated light. When I looked to the left and right, I could see bands of energy moving very rapidly with different scenes going on translucently in the wall of the, the vortal tunnel that opened up when we jumped through this, this Tesla uh, teleporter. And then we felt sort of like we were moving forward, but also I noticed I felt like I was falling down into an abyss. And I could see a light at the end of the tunnel that got bigger and bigger very quickly. And suddenly, in several seconds, we completed our foot fill footfall in another location in the United States. We, we, had, we had quantum leaped to the uh, state capitol complex in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And, and it was that means over the next five years with which I would repeatedly reach New Mexico via teleportation from the Tesla device at Building 68. Was there another Tesla at, device on the other end? No. The, the device opened up a kind of a disequilibrium um, a kind of a tunnel in the time-space continuum. And when the tunnel that was propagated by our movement across the energy field closed, we found ourselves elsewhere. So there was no device on the receiving end. Now, this is interesting. This is happening 66, 67, 68, uh, at the yeah. precise time that uh, Gene Roddenberry is introducing millions of uh, North Americans to the concept of the transporter device, where every every cell in uh, the, um, the subject's body is, is, is duplicated and then um, transported elsewhere. Uh, but this premise sounds entirely different. You're not, you're not being duplicated and sent elsewhere. I mean, uh, uh, you're jumping through an actual, uh, what, a tear in the space-time continuum? Well, actually, uh, that's a great analogy because Star Trek... Uh, um, was introduced on American television. It, it premiered in 1966. And in fact, the transporter on Star Trek essentially did the opposite of what we did. Right. Rather than being um, disintegrated and then reintegrated on the receiving end of where we were being sent, the universe was essentially being wrapped around us. We were entering, as, as Jack Pruitt, who later trained us on as a group of children um, in the beginning of the fall of 1969, on the same teleporter there at Curtis Wright, um, described it, the device was opening up an interstitial chasm in the fabric of time space. So we were entering a null, a null field, essentially. All right. Let me ask you very quickly before we go away to break, uh, and then we can sure. ex expand on this later. But thinking back, do you think you're, and I say this with respect, um, I, I, don't you think your father was being incredibly irresponsible to have included you in this at such an early age? Well, I... No, and, and in fact, when my, when my book comes out, I'm going to go into length about the moral decisions my father made. I think my dad made all of the right decisions, 
All right. Um, we'll, uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, stay put, uh, Andrew. Andrew Bashago is a pioneer in the field of time travel and teleportation, the secret Project Pegasus. Back with more on the other side. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Teleportation achieved over 40 years ago. So says my guest, a lawyer and a whistleblower who wants Washington to come clean not about UFOs necessarily, although I'm sure that's part of it, uh, but as part of uh, the disclosure movement uh, that is um, involved in the, the time travel and teleportation field at the age of five, the tender age of five, he leapt through a teleportation device with his father somewhere in New Jersey and ended up somewhere in New Mexico. Now, were you? Uh, I asked you briefly about your father and and and, and the moral dilemma that he that he um, must have he must have agonized over that. I, I'm sure, and and uh, as you say, you'll uh, you'll talk about that in your upcoming book. But for you personally, were you were you frightened? Were you excited? Uh, were you having fun? I think when I look back, one of the reasons why it was so difficult to to focus on my memories in the intervening years is because the actual effects uh, on a child's, you know, nervous system were, were pretty overwhelming. I didn't really experience fear, but there was certainly um, an overwhelming dimension to all of the different quantum access experiences um, that, that we were that we were then involved in over the next five years. So um, I think that, in fact, was one of their goals, was working with children. In fact, we know that was one of the goals was to work with children from early childhood to acclimate them to the different types of uh, psychological perceptions and physiological sensations that different forms of, of quantum access create. And so um, for a young child, it was just another you know, slice of reality. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't completely overwhelmed about, by it. I certainly knew who I was uh, when I arrived there on, on that particular jump. Uh, and if, if I might elaborate regarding what then happened uh, in New Mexico. It, it, I, ultimately, that first teleportation to New Mexico, I'm able to provide, I think, a very s- significant historical data point uh, in regard to Because what happened is my father got a car, uh, an automobile from one of the state offices there uh, at the state capitol complex in Santa Fe. We literally teleported to the grounds of the state capitol uh, complex. And we drove over to the Los Alamos National Labs, and we walked, I remember, on the first floor and then to the right into the offices of, 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 of an official there who was not at his desk, but it was going to be joining us, as the secretary explained. And then about 10 minutes later, um, one of the Manhattan Project uh, physicists walked in the room, Dr. Harold M. Agnew. And he, he urged us to sit down, and, and, and my, my father handed him a prospectus that he had brought with him from Curtis Wright. And then uh, while he was reading the prospectus, Dr. Agnew looked up and, and asked my father, how was your trip? And my father said, fine and fast. And, and Dr. Agnew looked up and said, oh, did you take the teleporter? And my dad said, yes, and, and, I, and I brought my young son, Andrew, with me. And I was an exceptionally cute kid, as we'll see in the photos. In my <laughs> and humble. <laughs> I, was just, I, was, I was just a real cute little boy. 
And and so Dr. Agnew, like adults always would, looked over and smiled pretty keenly and said, how old, to my father regarding myself. And my father and I answered simultaneously, six. Now, I think this is historically significant because it shows, it, it provides the date when practical physical teleportation of human beings without injury was already operational within the U.S. defense community. But there was even something else that, that, that establishes that, because then my father asked Dr. Agnew, have you tried it yet, namely teleportation? And he answered, no, but I want to. And so I think that also, from that we can draw the inference that teleportation was a new operational capability within the Defense Department at that time. So that establishes that sometime between September of 1967 and September of 1968 is when the extrapolations of Nikola Tesla's papers that he left at his death in 1943 had finally been derived into a physical prototype or, or a device that actually permitted uh, teleportation. You mentioned, uh, Andrew, that you were the first uh, to do so without injury. So there were others, other misfortunate uh, teleportation uh, subjects. Can you tell us anything about their fate? Yes. In fact, one group I was, I was informed about by my father, actually in my late 20s when I was quizzing him about what we had done together on the project shortly before his, his, his passing in, in 1990, Another event where there was a very uh, a profound injury, a very serious injury that one of the children uh, suffered, I was, a, I was an eyewitness to. Uh, my dad explained that after um, th they, they realized that this particular device in Tesla's paper, paperwork uh, was a teleportation device, they had three Navy enlisted volunteers jump th through the device, but the Vortal Tunnel that they opened up, the, the device had been set in properly, so the Vortal Tunnel was too long. They had basically teleported too far based on where the state of the art was at that time. And as a consequence, they asphyxiated and, and lost their lives because they ran out of the air that they pushed into the tunnel with them. We were only in the tunnel for a second or two. I mean, there was sort of a time dilation effect. But as my father later explained, we were actually respirating with a few breaths from the air we pushed in front of ourselves. And I remember getting slightly lightheaded during some of the teleportations that, over the next years that lasted a little bit longer. So there were lives lost um, in, in the development of teleportation. I don't know if anybody was lost in, in time space, but there were certainly deaths. Um, and then there was a, really a moment of, of really pressing tragedy, just, just grievous tragedy that I witnessed. Um, in 1971, they had children jumping from different teleports at, at different locations around the eastern and, and midwest of the United States, into the state capitol complex again. I think what they were rehearsing was dropping children into foreign countries for espionage purposes, because we did receive alpha intelligence training as, as children attached to Project Pegasus. So they were doing sort of a dry run, a rehearsal of, of jumping from different through different teleports, just as you would drop paratroopers from different airplanes. And... Um, I ran past a public fountain in the state capitol complex there in Santa Fe, and there was a boy on the ground whose, whose feet were missing. They had been sheared off. Oh, and I ran up to him. There were already three team leaders there. There was a, a male team leader holding him to the ground, and he was writhing in pain, uh, screaming, My feet, my feet. What am I going to do without any feet? I'm only nine years old. What am I going to do without any feet? And then I ran closer to him. And then I looked over at the fountain, and his feet were in the fountain, because what had happened is 
somebody had left the, one of the fountains on in the state capitol complex there. Um, or or another, it could have been, in fact, an, another Santa Fe location, but I know it was Santa Fe. And because of the specific density of the water, his feet arrived a split second later. And he essentially slid off his ankles. Um, and oh, dear down, Lord. Um, beside, the, beside the fountain. Well, this uh, sounds remarkably like some um, misfortunate events that occurred aboard the USS Eldridge back in 43 during the Philadelphia experiment when the, um, this uh, naval uh, experiment went awry and, and supposedly uh, uh, there were um, uh, naval men who dematerialized and then materialized in, you know, half sticking out of a bulkhead, etc. Is that the same sort of thing? I mean, is the genesis for what you're discussing actually go back to the Philadelphia experiment in 43? Well, we know something like the Philadelphia experiment uh, happened. Um, there was a, a former GE engineer on Project Pegasus named Bob Beckwith, and I remember him narrating uh, actually the true history of, of what we apocryphally know as the Philadelphia experiment. And in fact, uh, during my investigation of my experiences in Project Pegasus, I interviewed Bob several times about what we now regard to be the Philadelphia experiment. Um, and, in fact, the, the Office of Naval Intelligence changed all the critical facts regarding the original incident. The ship was, in fact, a ship called Martha's Vineyard. And it was not the, the Eldridge. Ship, it was not the no, Eldridge. in fact, if, you, if you'd like to discuss that, and I, I could do a brief colloquy on the Philadelphia experiment, because I actually have the, the, the valid data. Uh, it wasn't an attempt to achieve radar invisibility, as the story suggests. It, in fact, was an early experiment with the Tesla teleportation technology, because the Navy wanted to protect our ships from Nazi mines after the Nazi Navy began chaining mines to the bottom of the ocean. And so they wanted a teleportation device where they could literally shift a ship out of the way when they detected a mine. And so they performed this experiment not in the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard, but in Long Island Sound. And it wasn't John von Neumann at the helm of the ship, and this is one of the major facts they, they were, had they been concealing with the Philadelphia Experiment cover story. It was uh, Edward Teller and J. Robert Oppenheimer at the controls of the Martha's Vineyard, not, not the Eldridge. And when the device was turned off, the, the ship had gone back to uh, anchor not at Norfolk, Virginia, but at Newport News, Virginia. And then when it reappeared back in Long Island Sound, not the entire, all, all of the men on deck, but one sailor was falling through time space, and the Martha's Vineyard was brought back into focus, and he was impaled on the post supporting the splash cowling in front of the, the, uh, the helm of the ship. And then what they did to de-link Tesla, teleportation, and the Los Alamos physicists, which is something that in my account I'm relinking, because that's actually the true history of hidden time travel research and development by the United States defense community. They changed all of the critical facts who was aboard the ship, what the name of the ship was, where it was located, and what the purpose of the experiment was. Something like the Philadelphia experiment was conducted, but unfortunately it wasn't in Philadelphia, and it was a teleportation experiment. So, so Morris, so, Morris Jessup and, and Carlos uh, Miguel Allende and, and Al Bilag, the, 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 uh, the individuals that have sort of brought this story to our attention, 
they were uh, a, a, they were uh, what in uh, counterintelligence? They were uh, a cover uh, a story. Were they useful fools? Uh, well, the original the original propagators were clearly agents of the Office of Naval Intelligence. I won't make that claim regarding Al Bielik, who obviously is a living individual. I think Al realized the significance of the event and has been retelling it because he's been giving the basic gist of what happened. So I don't, I don't, I don't rebut his basic uh, scenario. But yes, that that is basically a cover story in the sense that they wanted to delink the connection between Tesla's papers, the fact that there were teleportation secrets in them, and the fact that during the war, at the very time that the Los Alamos physics community we've been led to believe was just focusing on building the atomic bomb, they also began to develop the different devices that Tesla uh, had articulated in his, in his uh, journals and, and left at his death in, in 1943, which were then, of course, we know from even conventional biographies of Tesla, like Margaret Cheney's biography of Nikola Tesla, that, those, that, the, that the papers of Nikola Tesla were never lost because they were seized by two War Department officials, who were racing two FBI agents to Tesla's apartment at the Knickerbocker Hotel in Manhattan, and the War Department officers got there first, and then those pa- that those papers were forwarded to the physicists that were then gathering in Los Alamos to build the atomic bomb. And that's one of the reasons I'm speaking out, because essentially the, the tragic early history of U.S. time travel research and development is that it was weaponized because it emerged in that, that wartime context. As a um, as a lawyer now, uh, I mean, coming forward with this kind of story, and I don't have to tell you, you know, for a lot of people, this is just beyond the pale. It's too fantastical uh, to, to to contemplate. But coming, I mean, what has this done for you, uh, your your professionally and personally, to, to be to be talking about these things right now? You know, there's been no impact on my my legal career. I think that. Americans recognize that some of our leading lawyers have always been activists. You know, you think of, I mean, what is a lawyer? I mean, a lawyer can be uh, a distinguished trial lawyer, or a lawyer could be somebody who has a career more, more like Ralph Nader. Um, actually, the historical individual I've been thinking about um, has not been a fellow lawyer, but it's been Frederick Douglass, because when you read the writings of Frederick Douglass, you see somebody who, who dedicated his life not just to abolition, but to establishing the fact that notwithstanding the fact that he was an African-American, he was a human being. And so the way I look at it is, well, yes, there may be impacts on my career, but I have to be true to my own humanity and my own life experience. These experiences are true, as true as it was for Frederick Douglass that he was a man and not three-fifths of a person. And, and so these are some of the individuals I've been thinking about, the abolitionists, the abolitionists who recognize that the truth has to be vigorously defended the truth that all men are created equal. Well, I'm trying to defend some very controversial truths. The fact that, for example, the U.S. government developed quantum access 40 years ago and has kept it secret. A teleportation technology that we could use to literally revolutionize transportation. And they are keeping it from us, and therefore the uh, the analogy is apt because we are, in fact, uh, uh, under these conditions, essentially slaves. Uh, living on a prison planet. The elites have this technology. They're keeping it from us. We're well-appointed slaves. We have very nice uh, cages, if you will. Uh, But uh, slaves nonetheless. Back with more of my conversation with time travel pioneer 
Andrew Bashago. Don't go away. Calling all time travelers, vampire slayers, and alien abductees. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett continues on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Andrew Bashago is a whistleblower and a lawyer and a writer and a visionary, a 21st century visionary here blowing the whistle on the uh, secret U.S. program called Project Pegasus involving teleportation and time travel that uh, sometime, I guess, between the, um, the so-called uh, Philadelphia Experiment or Project Rainbow in October of 43 and uh, somewhere in the mid to late 60s, teleportation uh, involving humans uh, was achieved. And uh, he was one of the first at the age of five, the tender age of five, to, uh, while he held his father's hand, jump through this uh, teleportation device. Now, you mentioned uh, the state capital was sort of the land, in, in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, was sort of the landing area. You entered uh, the uh, device in New Jersey, and a few uh, uh, seconds later, you're in the state capitol building. Why such a conspicuous location um, for the landing area? That just seems rather odd to me. Well, it, it is interesting, and in fact, it, it really... It really leads to an esoteric fact that I, I think will convince your listeners that I couldn't have made it up. I, I believe that they selected, in practical terms, they selected the state capitol complex there because they had to select an open air area. And if you visit the state capitol complex there, you see essentially a hodgepodge of different buildings built at different times where there's really no clear vantage point across any great distance. You know, so, for example, if somebody saw a child, as, as we, we were detected by civil, civilians there, you know, by, by the residents of Santa Fe, I, I myself uh, teleported right in front of an elderly man who was so startled by me appearing on the sidewalk in front of them, his pipe fell out of his mouth. Uh, but um, I believe they selected it in, in, in practical terms because they needed a public area to then find us after we teleported to Santa Fe. And a, a child suddenly appearing next to a building there would just be presumed to be some child on a school field trip who had just run around the corner of the building. But I did ask my father a question. Once. This was, again, uh, in the early 70s, in 71. I, I said, Dad, why are we always um, teleporting here to Santa Fe if you're then driving me frequently up, up to Los Alamos Labs? Why don't we just teleport right up to Los Alamos? And he said, because we're afraid somebody there at the labs will see something. Now, that's, that's a direct quote, and I now realize there were a lot of discoveries like uh, uh, around the, in terms of the historical context of this that I made actually during my investigation that I didn't understand as a child. The Defense Department was, com- was concerned about the penetration of the Los Alamos labs by, by Soviet spies. We now have the rich literature, for example, the, the Klaus Fuchs uh, spy scandal there at the labs. So they were actually teleporting us to Santa Fe rather than Los Alamos, because they were concerned, apparently, that Soviet spies at the Los Alamos labs would learn that the Defense Department had achieved teleportation. And that, that I think, goes to the, the, the degree of compartmentalization of the secrecy around these classified defense projects. They were literally concealing teleportation from the greater Los Alamos community. 
while you while you were I- involved in Project Pegasus, were you leading this double life? You you by uh, uh, you know I don't know what, uh, the timing of this, but at certain parts of the week you were in you were jumping through um, uh, teleportation devices, and then the and then the other days of the week you were in school learning arithmetic and uh, and uh, cursive writing. Well, that goes to the subtlety of what they actually involved us in, and so let me try to articulate that. Uh, in the fall of 1969, they placed us in a learning lab at my public grammar school in New Jersey, and we spent most of Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays in that learning lab. And we did everything from photo reading uh, courses, where they taught us how to read virtually instantaneously, all the way through to involving us in some of the quantum access activities in the learning lab. For example, the probes to our own subjective futures that we would take in the device called the Montauk chair. That was uh, carried out essentially in the 1969-70 school year, which for me was the third grade. And this was right after the lunar landing in, in July of 1969. It was that fall that they brought us together as a group of gifted children to groom us for Project Pegasus. But then... In, in the summer of 1970, they began to involve us in getting accustomed to teleporting back and forth uh, to New Mexico, because after we arrived in Santa Fe, we would be involved in different educational activities and then driven by car to the Sandian campus, the Sandia National Labs, where there was an identical teleport over on the right side of the facility that we would use to get back to Curtis Wright in New Jersey. But we noticed right there, uh, beginning in the fall of 1970, that we would spend sometimes the whole day in New Mexico, and then uh, nightfall would occur in New Mexico, which is obviously is two hours behind New Jersey. But then when we would teleport back to Curtis Wright, we would find ourselves in the bright sunshine of the day we had left. And I remember that we asked them there in the fall of 70, are you, are you setting us back in time? And some of the program administrators there at Curtis Wright said to us rather sheepishly, yes, in fact, we are. And we asked how many hours can or, you know, how, how far back in time can you place us? And they said 12 hours. So by fall of 1970, the U.S. defense community was not just in possession of teleportation for real-time transit across vast distances by creating these tunnels in the time-space continuum, but was able to adjust the teleportation device so that time travel was achieved, initially setting somebody back in time. And, and so they were using that ability to put us back in time when we would arrive back in New Jersey to then be able to bus us back to our learning lab at my elementary school or if my father was involved in bringing me back to New Jersey to then drive me home. And in that manner, our involvement in a classified defense project was effectively masked from our mothers, from our siblings, from our neighborhood playmates, from the other kids in school. Did, did, so it was did, really the, uh, the achievement of time travel that allowed them to conceal our involvement in, in time travel. Ah, and, and and what I mean, did at, at some point did uh, did uh, a man in black sit down with you and say, you know, Andy, you can never talk to anyone about this, and if you do, dot dot dot. The, the fear and intimidation, in fact, things that would probably violate human subject experimentation. I, I dare say, perhaps even the torture convention uh, in our time, were used to basically utterly convince us to shut up and to do what we were told. We were subjected to some pretty brutal experiences. Um, And I don't want to elaborate on them tonight, but I'm going to elaborate on them at length in my book. But yes, there were different things that were done, not to mind control us, but to basically use fear and intimidation 
to achieve two things. One was to cause us to not talk about the secret activities we were involved in to anybody who did not have a need to know, namely anybody who wasn't in the project, and also to simply be cooperative and, and be mindful of the fact that we were involved in very serious activities and that you know our cooperation was expected. So, so yes, different psychological ploys were used. In fact, we went to a, a meet-and-greet with the defense attaché to Project Pegasus, and this former congressman who was in his late 30s uh, who was then uh, working in a, uh, for the Board of Wage and Price Stabilization for the Nixon administration, admonished us how important what we were doing for the government was and how critical it was that we not talk about what we were doing. And that was uh, Donald Rumsfeld, an uh, uh -huh. individual who would go on to become the Defense Secretary of the United States, was in fact uh, the defense attaché to Project Pegasus. And I, I actually attended a lecture where uh, where Secretary Rumsfeld actually admonished us not to talk about what we were doing. So I wouldn't call him a, a man in black, but beyond that lecture, that, that meet and greet that, that Rummy uh, uh, administered uh, or you know lectured us at uh, in New Mexico one afternoon in the spring of 1971, prior to that, different things were, were done to pretty much condition us not to talk about what we were doing. All right, let's go to New York and uh, say hello to Frank. Frank, uh, you're on the uh, line with Andrew Bushago. Frank, are you there? Once, twice. Frank, are you yeah, there? Andrew. Is it Frank? Yes, I am. All right, Frank, go ahead. Yes, I am. You're on the air. Yes. Hi, Frank. I'm here. Go ahead, Frank. You're on the air. I would like to ask. I would like to ask the gentleman if he has. Turn your radio right. off, Frank. Ever read the book? The day, the day after Caldwell, New Mexico. The day after Roswell. <clears throat> yes, in fact, I think that that subject is germane to my experiences because at the All end, right, it, uh, it was written. Frank, you need to turn off your radio. You're con you're getting confused because you're hearing yourself in delay. Right on. Okay, Andrew, why is that that book germane to your experience? Well, and uh, Frank, just hold on. I asked Andrew. Frank, please hold on. I asked Andrew a question. Uh, if, if I'd like to get his response first of all. Yes. Okay. Yes, it it is germane to, to what we did in Project Pegasus in the area of time travel research, um, in the sense that when my experiences ended, we had an encounter with Dr. William B. Shockley at one of the project locations in New Jersey. And he had just returned from California and had returned to Bell Labs in spring of 1972. And we had, in fact, been taken to Bell Labs where the transistor was developed by uh, Dr. Shockley and uh, William Brattain and John Bardeen, um, for which they won the 1957 Nobel Prize in Physics, I believe. And Dr. Shockley was then the chief technical consultant to the U.S. Army. And during that brief meeting with Shockley, which uh, that was actually held outdoors, he was being given a tour of the facility, and he came over and talked to about 10 of the children uh, who had been attached to Project Pegasus. He thanked us for being involved in the project that proved that time travel was possible, and he explained, he actually said something very intelligent. He said, I think you children are probably wondering why we, we, we felt it so urgent that we do this, and that is because some of us realized that space exploration will allow us to visit a particular point in the time-space continuum 
at a given location and time. But time travel, time-space travel, will allow us to visit every location uh, in the time-space continuum at any time. So it was really a critical mapping exercise that the Defense Department wanted to uh, achieve a capability to, to, to carry out, to be able to go to any location in time-space. Was this Same an admission location. then by, by, by Shockley that his discoveries were in fact uh, reverse-engineered technology? Well, um, there, here's, here's, the, here's the thing. You are talking to me about time travel, but I am talking to you about the uh, supposedly uh, uh, Martians or whomever they may have been that crashed in, uh, I believe it was in the late uh, 40s, 46, 1947, correct. 47, yes. Corona, yeah. New Mexico. And uh, if you read the book, all of the people, the uh, native people, the farmers that were there, were all told by the United States government under the... Uh, uh, if they if they said anything, they would be killed. I mean, it's right in the book. Yes, no, we're familiar with that chapter. Up. We're very we're well versed in that uh, particular uh, chapter of, uh, of of history, Frank. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah. And and I don't want to uh, branch off into uh, into uh, Roswell or Martians just yet, uh, uh, Andrew. Um, I think I owe you a, a Richard, break Richard, here. Let, per, permit me to, uh, to actually answer the question about the, the extraterrestrial dimension. Can I get you to hold on? I, I think the, I Andrew, think can I get provide... you to... Andrew, can I just get you to hold on? We'll do that on the other side? Sure. All right. First, uh, Frank in New York, thank you for that. Andrew Bashago is uh, with us. Let me uh, also alert uh, you listening to the website. It's projectpegasus.net, www.projectpegasus, P-E-G-A-S-U-S, like the mythical flying horse, projectpegasus.net. That's linked up on uh, my website as well at richardserrett.com. Just click on Andrew's name on the homepage. And uh, back with more on the aforementioned project, time travel and teleportation. Stay with us. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. By our kings and queens. Brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. Love from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And I'm speaking with a whistleblower who was involved in the U.S. time-space program, Project Pegasus, in the mid to late 60s, early 70s. 
He's also the author of uh, Once Upon a Time in Time Stream, My Adventures in Project Pegasus at the Dawn of the Time-Space Age. Andrew Bashago uh, is with us. Now, uh, uh, Frank in New York uh, was uh, drawing a connection to uh, the uh, the craft that crashed near Corona, New Mexico back in 47. And uh, can you just sort of close that circle for us, uh, uh, well, Andrew, and explain the uh, the connection? Because the devices that make up the U.S. Uh, defense community's uh, quantum access capability are so advanced, obviously the notion that has been derived from the Roswell case and the Corona crash and so forth um, is that these technologies were reverse engineered from, from extraterrestrial sources. And I just want to clarify that I, I do believe I have essentially eyewitness testimony that I can provide that's germane to that question. And that is, my father made a statement to me when we were having lunch one day in Albuquerque when we were attached to the project, namely when we were in one of those time loops that had been created when we teleported to New Mexico, did things there that lasted days or weeks or an entire summer, and then teleported back to New Jersey, arriving on the afternoon of the day we had left. And what he said is he he quizzed me about whether I knew who Nikola Tesla was. And, of course, I did, because there had been an entire lesson plan on Tesla and his technologies that was part of the specialized curriculum that we were educated in, which was essentially uh, a liberal arts course of study in science and society from the year 1450 forward. It was called Galileo. And so there was a lesson plan on Tesla, and I said, sure, Dad, I know who Tesla is. In fact, he said, I think he was, I think he was um, Czechoslovakian or something like that. I said, no, Dad, he was, he was Serbian. And, and my dad said, oh, yes, that's right. And, and my dad made a point um, of, of, of informing me that most of what we were doing on Project Pegasus derived from the works of Nikola Tesla. But I must say, relative to the caller's question, that I think the proper way to conceptualize this is that the Defense Department maintains an intelligence funnel regarding esoteric technologies. So in those years, they were placing Tesla's work, they were place, placing the work of Soviet uh, researchers when they could acquire the technology. And, of course, they were obviously placing the technology that they had retrieved from, from downed uh, extraterrestrial craft. So I don't, I don't think it's an, an either-or kind of formulation. I think it's, a, it's, an, it's an and kind of situation. They were placing Tesla's work, Soviet work, extraterrestrial materials, information that they de- we were deriving from archaeological discoveries and so on. So I think all of the above is really the, the proper answer to that to that question. All right. Uh, before we go back to the phones, um, I want to uh, pursue this w- one line again, and, uh, and that is, um, is there a connection uh, between the, uh, the Phil- we'll call it the Philadelphia experiment, uh, in October of 47, and the, what seems to, to correlate to an increase in U- UFO activity uh, well, of course, Roswell was, uh, predates the Philadelphia... No, wait, no, Roswell is 47. So in 43, we have the Philadelphia experiment. And then we have what seems to be this ramping up of UFO activity. Is there a connection? Did this teleportation uh, device, perhaps as crude as it was in 43, open up some sort of a, a, a portal for, uh, for these craft? Well, that's a, that's a fascinating question. I think that the, that the historical record shows that the the 1947 saucer flap and the increase in extraterrestrial visitations to our planet probably resulted from when the fact that we began to 
essentially destroy some of the physical substrate of the time-space continuum by blowing up atomic weapons and also by um, pr propagating radioact radioactivity that then emanated into space from our fissile materials at places where the materials that made up the bomb were manufactured. So we know that there was scrutiny of New Mexico. Um, there was scrutiny of Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Obviously, the Kenneth Arnold uh, overflight over Washington State was not far from the Hanford nuclear site. So I think the true history of that isn't germane to quantum access on these time travel devices, but in fact something far more serious, which was the other part of what the, Manhattan, of the Los Alamos physicists were doing, which was finding ways to, to blow up uh, things that would involve uh, splitting the atom. So I think that, 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 that nuclear fission is probably the explanation for why the post-war saucer flap began and was sustained over many decades since then. Okay, let's uh, go to uh, Connecticut, and uh, Mike is with us on AM740 here in Toronto, Canada. Mike, you're on the air with Andrew Bashago. Thank you, Richard. I just wanted to ask Andrew about, uh, when I was a kid, uh, my, my, one of my favorite TV shows, the 60s television show, uh, The Time Tunnel, Irwin Allen, and uh, I don't know if he, if he ever watched it, but uh, a lot of it seems uh, that he would have been in on a lot of this information just by you talking about the tunnels, the tunnel, it's almost like the same thing type of thing, you know, time tunnel and all that. I just want to know if you can elaborate on that, and I'll hang up and I'll listen to that. Thank you, Mike. Well, I, I saw that show. That was obviously one of the uh, fictional shows on television that was being broadcast when I was a child. The, the only connection is that the, as I recall, the time tunnel in the show was a physical time tunnel, and it had armatures at the front of the tunnel that were not unlike the elliptical-shaped objects uh, of the Tesla device at Curtis Wright. But what we experienced when we jumped through that field of radiant energy was, was far more violent uh, than what they were experiencing in that, in that fictional TV show. So um, in, in my 10-year investigation, I've, I've now retrieved hundreds of, of data points that will prove that my experiences are real uh, and that didn't result from being influenced by television. But again, we have to remember that Science fiction as a genre was was partly created to actually mask what was going on in these classified defense projects. All right, uh, back to the time travel uh, aspect of this uh, of Project Pegasus, and you you mentioned a, a, a date, nineteen seventy or seventy one, when they first were able to dilate time, and you were you were um, sent to Santa Fe, and then came back uh, something like twelve hours prior to your departure, and then. Uh, then it was uh, they were able to ex dilate the time even further, and it would be an entire summer had passed while you were in New Mexico. You came back uh, something like twelve hours before you you actually even left. Um, no, well, no, actually, Richard, uh, I think the best way to conceive of these is is as time loops. So what they do is uh, this is essentially what what's called quantum displacement. You're you're jumped to one location, and you have experiences that occur there in elapsed time. And then you're not jumped back to before you left. You're jumped back to, let's say, 15 minutes after you left. Ah, okay. In other, in other words, they close the time loop at that point. All right. Now, this is um, <laughs> mind-blowing, to say the least, what you're describing here. <laughs> yeah. uh, so can you, can you explain in, in layman's terms 
uh, I mean, it was once described to me, you know, the, the, this time uh, travel uh, by a, um, a professor from uh, the University of Connecticut, um, whose name escapes me right at, at the moment. It'll come to me. I've had many conversations with him. But the idea of, and he's theorizing about how a time time machine could be built. Uh, but it's it's like taking a, a a stir stick and stirring a cup of coffee, and you're and uh, you're creating, uh, as you say, you're sort of folding space and time in on itself. But but um, you you explain to me how using these these I won't call them Tesla coils, but uh, explain to me how this time loop is created. Well, you you jump through a vortal tunnel in the time space continuum, and you arrive at another location. And then you go through ordinary diurnal experiences in that environment, lasting several hours or days, or in my case, we spent four hidden summers in New Mexico doing things before then being teleported back to New Jersey on the day we left. So I think the, th- the way to conceptualize it is if you can imagine a vortal tunnel in time space allowing you to jump in real time across a vast distance in space, you know, from Woodridge, New Jersey to Santa Fe, New Mexico, or from Sandia, New Mexico, back to north-central New Jersey. If you can then conceptualize the fact that when you're in the tunnel, they can bend that tunnel to put you back where you had been in the stream of time, you're not just jumping back in real-time spatially, you're being repositioned in the time-space continuum to account for the passage of time that resulted when you were on the time loop. Let me actually describe an anecdote that's actually kind of comedic that can kind of explain how we were really jumping between different dimensions. Um, In mid-November of uh, 1971, my dad took me up to Curtis Wright, and there was actually a military attache waiting up there who gave my dad um, a mailing tube full of military plans or containing military secrets. We jumped through the device, and that, in fact, was the teleportation when I asked him why we weren't teleporting directly to Los Alamos because we then drove to Los Alamos, and he dropped off the military plans up at the labs. And then we drove down to uh, essentially hang out with an old uh, and dear friend of my father's named Connie Chavez, who worked at one of the primary Mexican restaurants in Old Town Albuquerque, the La Hacienda, and also the La Placita restaurants, which were essentially the, the premier uh, Mexican restaurants in, in the whole state of New Mexico during those years. And when we were at uh, the La Hacienda there, my father said, Andy, come over here to the table and, and tell Connie what year it is. And I said, what do you mean, Dad, what year it is? And I walked up to the table and said, it's, it's 1971, isn't it? And Connie literally fell off her chair because, as I later found out, it was June of 1973. Oh, my. Okay, now that, that summer of 73, we, when, we, when we pre-experienced the summer of 1973, having jumped there, via a vortal tunnel and time-space continuum, via a Tesla device. Um, we essentially spent the whole summer there. Okay. Now, I was somewhat distressed by this fact that we were pre-experiencing 1973. I was worrying about when I would see my, my mother, my, my siblings again. And so when my dad left the house one day, we were staying in White Rock, New Mexico, which is about four miles from the labs. I actually found that address uh, during my investigation and I even linked its then-owner to the engineering department of the Los Alamos Labs. And uh, three weeks after we had arrived via teleportation, I asked Connie the area code for New Jersey 
And then when my dad had left the house, I knew what my, my seven-digit phone number was because my parents had had us memorize it, you know, for our own, our own protection as kids. And I called my mother in New Jersey. And I said, Mom, do you know who this is? And she said, of course, it's my, it's my number three son, you know, Andrew. And I said, guess where I am? And she said, where? And I said, I'm in New Mexico on a secret project with Dad. And she said, no, you're not. Don't play tricks on your mother like this. You're right here in the house. Because she had taken the phone into the kitchen and looked down into the rec room, and I was sitting playing in the middle of the rec room. And she said, no, so don't play tricks on me like that. Now, that was three weeks after we had teleported to New Mexico, spent the summer of 73 there, and then we teleported back to the afternoon of the day we had left in November of 71. Well, three weeks after we teleported back to 1971, guess what happened? I was playing in the rec room. Mm. My mother received a call from me upstairs. and The phone rang. She couldn't understand how she was looking at her youngest son playing in the rec room while she was talking to me on the telephone. So when my dad came home from work that day, she said, Ray, something very strange happened today. And, and, and he said, what? And he said, Andy called me on the phone. And he goes, well, that's not so exceptional, is it? He goes, she said, but he was in the house. And, and my dad said, well, so what? And she said, Ray, we only have one phone. <laughs> and, he, and he said, well, maybe, you know, he began to cover them, right? Because he was concealing from my mother and other siblings what we were involved in. Absolutely. Said, well, maybe he ran next door to the Connors and called you. <laughs> And, I just... and, and she said, he, he couldn't have, Ray. He was, he was downstairs in the rec room playing. Okay, so the, 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 I think it's kind of a comedic or cute kind of anecdote of just what was going on in my family and the way that we were actively, almost comedically, you know, concealing uh, what we were doing from others. Your poor mother. But... I'm, I don't know if I was her, if I would think that was funny or not. But listen, hold on, uh, Andrew. And I, 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 I just rem- was um, able to um, remind myself that it was um, Dr. Uh, Ronald Millette, or Professor Ronald Millette from the University of Connecticut, who I've talked to numerous times about uh, time travel and his theoretical uh, time travel machine. The interesting thing is, he thinks that uh, within 10 years, given uh, enough money, we could, in fact, perfect time travel, but or create a time travel uh, device, but only in order to send information uh, into the future or the past. He said to, to actually send a human being would require so much energy, you would have to, to harness the power of several suns. I'll, I'll ask Andrew Bashago uh, about that when we come back and uh, his other further adventures in Project Pegasus. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Andrew Bishago, my guest, president of the Mars Anomaly Research Society and a whistleblower. He wants Washington to come clean about um, their time travel and teleportation uh, a project, Project Pegasus. He was involved with that project in uh, the mid-60s. How long were you involved in, in Project uh, Pegasus, Andrew? Well, officially, I, I was enrolled from the fall of 1969, at the beginning of my third grade year, to the summer after my fifth grade year, which was the summer of 1972. But as I was trying to articulate with that anecdote involving my, my mother and father at the house, which was really to show sort of the way that quantum displacement causes you to operate on two different timelines that can then be rejoined. 
Um, I essentially lived about an, uh, an extra year of existence because four essentially hidden summers were were sandwiched into those three years. Right. In other words, four time loops that were that were summertime activities. Essentially, the summers of 1970, 71, 73 pre-experienced a- after having been reached from the fall of 71, and then the summer of 72. And after each of those summers, we then teleported back to our point of embarkation in time space, not just in space. I mentioned uh, uh, Professor Ronald Millette and his uh, work at the University of Connecticut. I, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Professor Millette or not, but uh, as I mentioned before the break, uh, he's quite confident that within 10 years, given enough money, uh, he could build a working time machine that would, would be able to send information uh, into the future or into the uh, into the past, and uh, you can think of the implications. Uh, you could use it as an early warning device, uh, for example, to warn people uh, about earthquakes, etc. But he says that's that's about as much uh, energy as we can muster at this point in our development. Uh, and he said to send a human being backwards and forwards in time, you would have to harness the power of of several suns. Uh, so, just. To, I guess uh, explain I, the uh, the the seeming contradiction there. I mean, how? What was it that the Tesla discovered that was able that, that is able to sort of circumvent that, or or have we in fact harnessed the power of several suns? No, what, what Tesla discovered was the way to tap uh, a form of energy that he called radiant energy from the time space continuum itself, from the quantum hologram. And this energy is latent in the physical universe. It's pervasive. And, you know, space itself is incredibly energy-dense. Um, I saw a statistic that doc, uh, physicist uh, Dr. David Cummings uh, derived. I think, it's, um, I, I think there's, a, there's something like 1 times 10 to the 13th power ergs of energy in a cubic centimeter of space, or a cubic meter of space. So space is, is, is almost incalculably dense and with energy, uh, even though we tend to uh, envision it as being a cosmic void. It's actually, as Dr. Cummings says, a quantum plenum. And what Tesla found is a way to harness a particular type of energy that allows for these vortal tunnels to be opened up in that very energy-dense space. And so my response to to Dr. Mallet, who's obviously one of the more brilliant time travel researchers who's currently working, is that, look, scientists allege that they're on the cutting edge of science and they know what the state of the art is. But I really think that they're in a a state of perpetual cognitive dissonance because at the same time, they don't admit that the full, um, full knowledge about science and indeed applied science is kept back from them as a, as a result of government secrecy. So really, no, t- no contemporary time travel researcher has the adequate uh, evidentiary base to allege, allege what may be possible because they don't have access to information about what's already been achieved. And so I would just pi- politely defer and say, well, nobody can prognosticate about whether they've achieved the state of the art or what might be achieved in quantum access 10 years from now because the true history of time-space research has been kept back from the scientific community at large as a result of Nikola Tesla's um, uh, formulae and schematics of his devices being 
uh, sequestered as state secrets when they were weaponized in 1943. Um, so it's really a political problem, not, not a scientific one. All right. Confirm or deny or, or disabuse me of the notion, and this is, again, something that uh, Dr. Or Professor Millette uh, said to me, and that is you cannot, because his... The whole impetus for him trying to develop the the time machine was to go back to 1956 and save his father, who who died at a young age from a fatal heart attack. It's a very romantic, uh, sort of heart-rending story. But what he discovered was that uh, you cannot travel back further in time than the time machine was invented. So if the time machine is invented tomorrow, you can't travel back further than December 28, 2009. Well, I... That's not valid because after the machine, uh, well, actually, that, that may be valid because the, the deep accessing of the past, in other words, the, the, the quantum access that we performed into the distant past was not, was not performed via teleportation. It was a form of virtual time travel that was achieved via this second set of technologies that was under development called chronovisors, which were electro-optical devices that propagated a hologram of a past event that you could then experience virtually. I'm trying to think of the, of the time travel to the past via teleportation. Well, in fact, we were looping back to times that, yes, were in elapsed time or after the development of the technology. So I think that that, that conception on his part is, is probably accurate. Another problem with teleportation is you can't, you can't access the past via teleportation and get home to the present if there's not a means to get, get back from it, if you're teleporting, that is. And so if he was to jump back to 1956, he certainly wouldn't be able to return to the present um, because the Tesla devices weren't operational until 1967-68. He would be stranded in time space. Right. Uh, but but, but if he, only if he used that technology. There's other ways to access 1956 without, without using teleportation. Right. Now... Your uh, involvement in Project Pegasus, how far back, what was the furthest back in time you went or that you heard about someone else going back in time? The, in the chronovisors at Morristown, they propagated the hologram. The first time that we stood on the stage and they turned the hologram on, uh, and these, again, weren't Tesla devices. These were the result of advances in holography that were achieved by two Vatican musicologists named Ernetti and Gemelli, who then partnered with Enrico Fermi, the distinguished Italian physicist. And they had operational chronovision as a flat screen, a two-dimensional array, by 1952. And certainly by the early 70s, when I was a child participant in Project Pegasus, these holographic arrays were now moving fourth-dimensional cubes of light. And in the first probe that we did in the past, using that form of quantum access, in the secret lab in Morristown, New Jersey, uh, beginning in the fall of 1970, uh, they sent us back to the time of the dinosaurs. And I found myself walking along a crest, a kind of a ridge line, in a red earth environment, very similar to, let's say, Sedona, Arizona. And I walked far beyond the physical boundaries of the, of the lab, so they were able to open up, using chronovision, open up a fourth-dimensional reality, a fourth-dimensional quantum environment, and I saw two huge dinosaurs over to my right chomping on some tall, tall grass and tall vegetation. But this is a hologram. You can't interact with your environment, correct? We were. They were able to open up a hologram in which they were literally able to insert us holographically in a superluminal sense in a past event, including very distant events. But we didn't need to teleport there or home because 
essentially when the hologram collapsed, we found ourselves back in the in the lab in Marstown, or if we had been in for more than 15 minutes, a density effect occurred, and they had to insert a portal that we then ran through to get out of that, out of the hologram, and, and get back to the present. But that was not teleportation, and it wasn't really ultimately physical time travel. That was a form of, if you will, metaphysical time travel, of virtual time travel. It almost sounds like remote viewing. Well, it was a form of technically assisted remote viewing in the sense that a hologram of a past event was was being propagated as a result of their ability to identify the signal of a past event, amplify it, and array it in a three-dimensional space. What about the future? How far into the future have you traveled? Well, the future held physical teleportation devices because the project was already operational by 1970. So the farthest of the future I went, which was via a Stargate device, the term Stargate was used in Project Pegasus. Um, uh, we jumped from a Stargate device that was at the basketball court in the old YMCA building in Cerritos, New Mexico. Uh, there's a compound there called the Cerritos Cultural Center. And in those years, it was being used to mask some of the project activities of Project Pegasus. We jumped to the year 2045 to retrieve data that was being prepared by project uh, personnel in the future and, and brought it back and, and jumped back by a, a teleport device that was actually masked in the wall of a conference room at that facility. So that's one of the constraints of teleportation. I think that's what Dr. Millett may have been addressing, is to get home back to the present via teleportation is difficult if you jump to a past location where the device doesn't exist. Uh, so in this case, we were able to get back from 2045 because there was a nexus between the program in 1970, 71, 72, and, and, and these researchers in the future. They were actually project personnel in, in the future. Andrew, uh, the, the details uh, that you're relating here uh, are so incredible. And uh, you are either an Academy Award-winning actor or you're telling the truth. I, uh, this is um, mind-blowing, again, to me, uh, because, you know, you, just, you, you say these things with such sincerity and conviction uh, I don't, I don't know how else to respond. Uh, let's uh, let's go back to the phones. And uh, somewhere in the province of Ontario is Josh. You're on the air, Josh, with Andrew Bushago. Yeah. Hello. Uh, good evening. Uh, I was just wondering. Um, you kind of went over what, how Tesla, like like you, no one really knows how Tesla came up with the idea. Like he was such a brilliant mind, but it was developed from his from his works, and so. Basically, you're saying that it was basically reverse-engineered, and, and then maybe um, from there it, it, it became more refined. But uh, a second question was, have you ever undergone hypnosis to prove to yourself what happened really happened, and if uh, there were any other people in the project that you've been in contact with? Great questions, Josh. Andrew? Yeah, Josh, let me address both questions, actually, because I'm not saying that the, that quantum access emerged uh, in the U.S. defense community around 1970 as a result of reverse engineering of, of alien technology. I'm saying that the primary contribution were the works of Nikola Tesla that he left at his death in 1943, but that undoubtedly the intelligence funnel was receiving technology from, from every source that the government deemed relevant, including uh, extraterrestrial technology. Uh, and then uh, your second question is whether I underwent hypnosis. No. In fact, 
because I knew at the outset of my investigation about 10 years ago that my experiences were so far out and revolutionary and that I had an extremely important historical story to tell, that I was literally a child participant in, 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 in time-space exploration by the U.S. government at the time of its emergence. I was concerned that my account would be subject to the vagaries of interpretation, to the, to, to the imputation of subjectivity to my account. And so I strenuously avoided going under hypnosis and instead sought out extrinsic forms of evidence so that, my, that, that, the, that the memories that were emerging and that I was uh, recording from my own subjective experience could be proved by other people's accounts or by physical evidence or by whistleblower accounts from inside the, uh, the government itself. In my book, in fact, soon on my website, projectpegasus.net, I'm going to be providing information that 12 people uh, with insider information, uh, the information they shared with me, establishing uh, to an historical certainty that Project Pegasus existed and was not a figment of my imagination, that it involved emergent time travel technology, and that I was one of the child participants in the project. So I really avoided uh, hypnosis because I wanted to, to validate my subjective memories with information that I could derive from, from others and from the environment. In fact, during my second fact-finding trip to New Mexico uh, in September of 2004, I actually recovered a toy that I left at uh, the old school site in Lamy, New Mexico, where they were medically examining us and cognitively testing us as when we began uh, teleporting to Santa Fe as a group of school children in summer of 1970. Where, by the way, we were then role was taken by a young, a young man who had just graduated from college in Boston, who became a very prominent New Mexican, and that was uh, Governor Bill Richardson. Uh, so I'm going to be I'm going to be making a public call to Secretary Rumsfeld and Gover Governor Richardson, uh, probably to coincide with George Washington's birthday. And you know I'm going to be asking them publicly. Well, you know George Washington could could not tell a lie. And I can't either. You know, I, I was involved in time travel with you guys, and I'd like you to now come forward. Josh in Ontario, uh, thank you uh, for the call. Uh, Andrew, uh, the disclosure movement, um, uh, Stephen Bassett and, and Stephen Greer et al., uh, their focus is obviously on, uh, on uh, Washington coming clean about what they know about uh, the UFO presence uh, or the, AL, the ET presence uh, here on Earth. Uh, you're... A, a, track is, is is slightly different. I mean, you're you're focusing on uh, you want them to come clean about uh, the the project Pegasus and and the development of teleportation and time travel. But but where are there? I mean, are you in discussions with? Uh, are you uh, I mean involved with with Bassett and Greer or or or, uh, or, or is there some common ground or do they think that your that 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 your um, your work is perhaps uh, uh, getting ahead of ahead of them and where they where they think we need to be. Well, I, I wouldn't want to comment on how they view me. Um, obviously, I, I think we can say that there are really four prominent figures in in exopolitics and in the disclosure movement now. Uh, Stephen Greer, I've never met, um, uh, so I can't comment. I, I have had discussions about my Mars findings with Dr. Michael Stalla and with Stephen Bassett. And I think like a lot of informed individuals, they were somewhat reactive to my bold claim that Mars is inhabited. I haven't discussed my experiences in Project Pegasus at length with them. And then obviously, perhaps the most prominent exopolitical leader and, 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 uh, uh, and catalyst for disclosures is the distinguished Alfred Lambermont Weber. 
Uh, Alfred and I are old friends. I asked him to be chairman of, of Mars, uh, the research organization that I founded. And we've had extensive discussions um, about about my disclosure campaign, which is really directed at two major goals. One, um, encouraging the United States government to reveal that it, it did achieve teleportation 40 years ago, and it should be la- launching a new Manhattan project to try to see that teleportation is adopted globally um, to create the infrastructure of the 21st century that will be sustainable and support the population growth that we're going to be seeing. The other major goal, of course, is to uh, to have the U.S. government acknowledge that Mars is an inhabited planet, uh, because that's going to require protecting Mars with a treaty from visitation, exploration, habitation, and, and God forbid, colonization by Earthlings of Mars. I think I can speak for Alfred and say that, as a major figure in the disclosure movement, he's in complete agreement with me that the dis- the the ambit of the disclosure movement has to be expanded away from its single-issue focus on the extraterrestrial cover-up, really into other areas that are as significant. The fact, for example, uh, that the U.S. government has been holding back life-advantaging technology. And I think that's also consonant with Dr. Greer's um, work in in urging disclosure of uh, essentially uh, the next generation of technology in other areas beyond uh, teleportation to include, for example, free energy. So there is a there is a nexus there. There's a, cro- a natural. Uh, I, I view these individuals ultimately as natural strategic allies, because they're working for the same thing, and that's the truth. And, and the truth is not only that we've been visited by extraterrestrials, but that the U.S. government is holding back technology that we're going to be needing uh, to achieve planetary sustainability in the 21st century. As I mentioned, uh, your 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 colleague uh, Alfred Weber was on on this program uh, two weeks ago and, and was discussing the uh, the evidence. Um, for for life on Mars, so I don't want to sort of go over that that ground again. Uh, but um, before I get to that, let me ask you this: uh, This is jumps out to me immediately, and that is, uh, given that that forty years ago, the U.S. Uh, government had, uh, it sounds to me, uh, I think, safe to say, perfected uh, teleportation. Uh, and and uh, of course in 1969 they were uh, they were using uh, good old fashioned uh, you know rocket fuel to get to the moon and still are with the shuttle program uh, and of course we know the um, the uh, the sad legacy of uh, those that perished uh, during the Mercury and Apollo uh, projects and the shuttle program uh, that means uh, that uh, those space programs were complete window dressing, public relation, um, public relations exercises. But that also means that somebody um, has blood on their hands. Uh, Andrew, would you be in favor of uh, disclosure being accompanied by sort of an amnesty to protect those people that allowed astronauts to die, despite the fact that we had, um, you know, anti-gravitic uh, technology, teleportation technology? Yes. In fact, the, the truth and reconciliation model that emerged uh, with the end of apartheid in South Africa is indeed the model that I would endorse as a lawyer. Let me just give you uh, five things that I know the U.S. government knew decades in advance, and you'll see the sensitivity of this question. But By the way, I, I don't think that we can hold NASA or the space program accountable for those deaths because, in fact, time-space, um, time-space technology, time-space exploration technology, 
was emerging in an entirely different context than the U.S. government. It was emerging under DARPA with reporting requirements to the CIA, uh, security being provided by the U.S. Army, and there were educational components, for example, programmatic components, for example, the schooling of, of we children in the program by the U.S. Navy. So NASA was, I'm not sure that NASA and its officials were even aware of the emergence of this technology. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suspect they would be, but, but Rumsfeld was, and he yes. had access to Nixon, so he could have yes. said let, something. Let me, let, me just cite, let me just cite five historical developments that I know they knew about when I was a child on the program. First of all, I know that they knew Mars is inhabited because they not only knew that I would be playing a role when I grew up, was in my 40s, about the discovery of life on Mars, but in 1971, my father permitted me to read my 2008 paper, The Discovery of Life on Mars. They had it. And so that means that... Sorry, CIA just let me, let me, uh, let me uh, repeat that. In 1971, your father allowed you to read the paper that you wrote in 2008. That is correct. He took it out of an envelope and had me read it and instructed me to read and try to remember it, as much of it as possible so that when I wrote it as a 47-year-old, you know, almost 40 years in the future, it would contain as much information about Mars and its life forms as possible. So they were involved in this form of quantum enfoldment where even though they were very reluctant to play God and, let's say, prevent a future event, they had begun the practice of identifying persons of interest from the future and sharing data about future events with them when they wanted that event or that eventuality to, to occur. So I know... That, that, that a faction within the U.S. intelligence community knew that Mars is an inhabited planet in 1971 because I was permitted to read my 2008 paper that had been taken backward in time by our time-space personnel and, and shared with the CIA, to which my father obviously had reporting requirements as an engineer working in the classified defense realm as, as he was. That means, Andrew, that, is, that in 1971 they must have known you were going to become a whistleblower. When we come back on the other side, I guess my question to you would be, why did they allow you to, to live? When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. As a child, my crude attempts at time travel involved running across the uh, the living room and then quickly turning around in in hopes of uh, getting a glimpse of myself uh, but my uh, my guest is the real deal uh, ladies and gentlemen andrew bishago was involved in project pegasus as a child and uh, was teleported uh not only geographically uh, from new jersey to new mexico but also back and forth in time uh, and Andrew, my question before the break to you was, if in 1971 they allowed you to read a paper that you wrote in 2008 about m life on Mars, they, they must have known then, obviously, that you were going to become a whistleblower. Now, why would they want you hanging around? Well, indeed, they, they did know that I was destined not only to be a, a whistleblower, but a figure in the disclosure movement, in fact, the principal whistleblower uh, in regard to Project Pegasus. 
that occurred by mid-summer of 1971, the middle part of that second summer that my father and I spent in quantum displacement New Mexico. Because they not only had my paper, which of course he would show me in the fall, they had my book, they had my memoir, the expose that I'm currently writing about my experiences in, in Project Pegasus. And um, as a result, I was essentially persona non grata in the project. Uh, Richard, are you still there? I am. I'm, I'm listening. Yes. Oh, okay, I, I heard a click. Okay. And, uh, and so we're going to show this also, hopefully, if, if, if the movie is made uh, uh, regarding my experiences. I, I really was being treated pretty brutally, uh, with, certainly with condign rudeness by the other adults in the project at that time. And my father was very angry at me because they realized that one of the children who had jumped through all of the hoops and was involved in even going to the far future and retrieving the data that was being prepared there and taking it back, who was also one of the, uh, the children of one of the pr principal project engineers, was destined to play this role. And, and they did do things to try to discourage me. Uh, I, re I received a lot of lecturing from my dad, that certainly the the, uh, the meet-and-greet, which was that lecture that Don Rumsfeld uh, undertook in spring of 71, may have been responsive to that, because he certainly strenuously urged us not to talk uh, or share our experiences with others. Um, they did do something very uh, unpleasant to me, short of killing me, to try to prevent me from remembering and, 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 and uh, sharing my experiences with others, which was that at the end of my project experiences, I was taken to a medical lab and I was placed over a, 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 a medical examining table, and I had needles inserted up my spine, and they were perfusing my spinal column with some kind of drug that created an excruciating headache. And I, I underwent several hours of brainwashing where they, the, uh, the individual uh, perpetrating this uh, you know, s spoke to me in a kind of a mesmerizing voice about not, you know, about having... Um, an atrocious headache like this every time I thought about what I did on Project Pegasus. So there was a very brutal brainwashing session that I was subjected to before I left the program uh, as an 11-year-old. And then when I was age 16, 17, they tried to direct me towards where they had originally intended to direct uh, us as young chrononauts, which was into the U.S. Naval Academy um, as a pretext for involving us in future project activities. Now, when I balked at that, when I refused to go to the Naval Academy uh, as a college-aged uh, young man, uh, I had essentially about 30 or 40 social disruption campaigns that were directed at me after that. So they clearly had programmatic reasons for not, for not uh, assassinating me, but I was subjected to a lot of basically personal disruption um, by government operatives. And yet, and I'm you... really not going to belabor those those, okay. those encounters. But uh... all right, no, we'll wait for the we'll wait for the uh, the book. Uh, yet, right, you you right. you, uh, you still maintain your father made the right moral decision in in in, in listing you into the program. Let's go to uh, Pennsylvania and uh, say hello to Steve. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show, Steve. Yeah. Good uh, Good evening. Um, I have a question. Um, with all this talk going on right now. Um, you know, that movie just came out uh, not too long ago. What was it, uh, 2012 and the end of the Mayan calendar? Do you foresee uh, in any of your travels uh, anything actually happening? Well, Steve, that's a good question. In fact, we, we were involved in a chronovisor-based uh, probe. Uh, I actually have the date because it was the, uh, the first Friday in, in November. We were trained for it throughout the early fall of 1971. So on November 5th of 1971, 
we were taken up to the ITT Defense Communications uh, Facility in Nutley, New Jersey, and we wore protective clothing in the form of a crystal helmet and a titanium-coated jumpsuit and boots. And they, they sent us on a probe to remotely view the U.S. Supreme Court building in the year 2013. And then we, then we were taken back and we were debriefed by uh, a lieutenant commander for the U.S. Uh, Office of Naval Intelligence. And as I, as I told the officer from the ONI, the target, which was the Supreme Court building on the mall in, in Washington, D.C., was under about 100 feet of water. In fact, it was brackish water because I could see algae on the columns of that building. So in, on that timeline, there is a 2012 catastrophe that placed the eastern seaboard of the United States under a substantial amount of water. But I'm quick to add that before even 1971 ended, we knew that the chronovisors were accessing alternate timelines in a multiverse, that the universe consists of a set of uh, densely, uh, densely packed, internested uh, alternative timelines. And so it's not my claim that catastrophe has to happen in 2012, but I am providing an eyewitness testimony that in that set of quantum access experiences or, or probes that were undertaken, the U.S. government um, received data about what was going on in 2012, 2013 on that timeline that I believe it has engaged in contingency planning in response to. For example, placing a continuity of government hub at the Denver International Airport and continuing the deep underground military base uh, development in the American Southwest that they will use to relocate the center of the U.S. government in the event that that 2012 occurs on our timeline. I don't think it's going to occur in our timeline um, for reasons I'm going to explain in my book, but, but I do know that it was one of the disconcerting future events that they were actively investigating. Stephen, Pennsylvania, thank you for the call. Uh, Andrew, where are they now? Do you have any sense of uh, to what extent uh, DARPA or the U.S. military uh, ha- have um, perfected time uh, or teleportation or time travel, and how are they using it? Well, this is another reason I'm speaking out. I mean, even if we were to, to assume arguendo that the, that the state of the technology stagnated after 1972, they still created essentially a cult of intelligence, a kind of a priesthood, in which only a small number of human beings were let in on these secrets. Now, let's assume arguendo that the technology continued to evolve over the last 40 years. In all likelihood, they're teleporting to distant star systems from space platforms. Um, So I don't know where the technology has gone. All I know is that what they had already achieved by 1970 was was quantum access, the ability to send somebody physically to a future event or a recent past event where the technology still existed after the development of the technology via teleportation, and also to send somebody in a form of virtual time travel to a past or future event of virtually unlimited distance in time space via chronovision. And so this is why I'm speaking out, because teleportation is something that we should all be able to enjoy. We should be able to, to to jump through a teleport um, at, at Grand Central Teleport in New York City and arrive several seconds later at Union Teleport in Los Angeles. We should be able to jump from New York to Paris in a few seconds and not undergo all of the 
fatigue and stress of long-distance travel, nor be responsible for placing all those greenhouse gases up in the atmosphere um, by using this outmoded technology. Agreed, but somehow I think they'll still manage to lose our luggage. Andrew, stay with us. Uh, One final timeout and a a couple of uh, final notes before we say goodnight. Andrew Bashago, a pioneer in time travel and teleportation. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Andrew, a couple of quick questions. Um, Time uh, quickly elapsing here, and we don't have benefit of a time machine to go back and extend the show. So uh, to what extent uh, is the the, the president uh, in, in the loop here? Does he have it? within his power to uh, to demand disclosure? Or is it a situation, as I suspect, have long suspected, that the president isn't really that powerful and that it is this rests really with the, the elite, the unelected oligarchs above him to make this decision? Well, this is a very complex question. In fact, it goes to the heart of, of what needs to be corrected uh, in the political culture in the West. I know to a personal certainty that... Uh, a number of our last U.S. presidents in, in my country here in the States were given prior uh, knowledge of their destinies as president as a result of the quantum access capabilities of the U.S. intelligence community. I know that was true of President Carter. Well, I don't know if he was informed, but I know the Bushes were informed because my father and I met George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush uh, when we were socializing on the project, and they had been apprised of their destinies as president around the time that George Bush Sr. was uh, running for Congress in the early 70s. I also had the opportunity to overhear uh, Bill Clinton's name being mentioned as a future American president, and uh, in in an almost uh, preposterous coincidence, a coincidence that I think uh, may have uh, been the result of intervention by a providential God, as an adult uh, uh, who had participated in Project Pegasus as a child, when I was 20, when I was attending UCLA as an undergraduate, uh, I had a brief meeting with Barack Obama in Los Angeles when he was in L.A. Uh, visiting his friends from Occidental College after he had spent a year at Columbia. And a friend of his, an ally of his in the anti-apartheid movement, uh, we had been arguing in somebody's kitchen in West Los Angeles, stated to me in Barack Obama's presence, uh, you better be polite to him, Andy, because he's going to be president of the United States someday. Uh, I did something flippant like, well, maybe we'll we'll pitch against each other in the ninth inning of a World Series, seventh <laughs> game, ninth inning of a World Series. And his friend then said, no, you don't understand. We know he's going to be present. And then uh, Barack Obama used that to break away, and he looked over at me and, and shrugged his face in affirmation of what his friend had said in his presence. So the, the situation is really quite complex. We're living in a situation in which, because the U.S. government uh, achieved quantum access by no later than 1970, and there was an institutional decision, a bureaucratic decision in the intelligence community and what you might call the permanent secret government of individuals like Donald Rumsfeld, to not play God and, for example, prevent negative future events from occurring like 9-11, which I know they knew about as well. They did make this decision to approach people who had particular destinies and apprise them of what those destinies were. In my case, it was obviously related to the role that I would play in, in enlightening humanity about the fact that, that Mars is inhabited. In the case of a young Barack Obama, he knew by age 20 that he was going to be president. 
So one of the difficulties in achieving uh, presidential disclosure of quantum access is that the last several presidents have been implicated in it. And that's why I've limited my disclosure campaign simply to the technical feat of teleportation. Because we don't need to go into a time gate, you know, some elaborate constitutional crisis regarding quantum access. We can simply demand of the U.S. government that they acknowledge that we achieved teleportation 40 years ago and do so in the context of launching a global program uh, to implement that technology. Andrew, just about out of time. Are we ready for this? Are we ready for this disclosure? Are we prepared? I think we are. I, I think we are. I think, that, I think that, that people are ready for cosmic citizenship. Based on the, the messages that I've gotten, the thousands of messages of support that I've gotten from my fellow human beings around this planet, people are desperately uh, hungry at this time in our history for government to tell the truth to them, to come forward in a spirit of, of truth and reconciliation and amnesty and reveal what they know so that these secrets can be used to benefit not just the defense community uh, and not just the, the effort to create more sophisticated weapons to destroy human life, but to create an international culture based on, on the advantagement of human life. And I think people are not only ready, but they're desperate for the truth. And, and they are fully behind my truth campaign. And I think that the leadership will ultimately follow the people and that disclosure of things like teleportation will occur uh, in the next several years during the Obama years. And that's why I'm pressing uh, so ardently at this point for disclosure on teleportation, because I think we're going to be needing it in the 21st century. And I'm hopeful that I'm going to be able to apprise the, uh, and convince our leadership of that, of that argument. Andrew Bashago, uh, thank you for this. And the website again, www.projectpegasus.net. And we have to do this again um, uh, before, after uh, your, your, your book uh, comes out. Uh, can we make that a date? Certainly. I, I, I've, I've loved uh, this, this conversation, Richard, and I'd be happy to come back. Thank you thank very you much. Me. All right. Have a good night. All right. Uh, to those we left on the line, uh, Bella in New York, uh, Nika in Toronto, others, uh, my apologies, we didn't get to you. Uh, and also, I, I noticed, just dropped off the line, um, uh, Paul from Oshawa, who I suspect is, in fact, our um, our subject for next week's show. And I, w- I wish I'd had more time. I would have brought him on uh, a little earlier if I could have. Just to sort of preview what's, what's going to happen uh, next Sunday. Again, uh, Paul... Uh, has long suspected that he is the victim of alien abduction, and he will be going, undergoing, if all goes well, undergoing a uh, a hypnotic regression live on the air in this very studio next Sunday at 11 p.m. with the aid of regression therapist uh, Deborah Sky, uh, Deborah Sky, and uh, he's going to hopefully be able to either confirm that suspicion. Uh, that he was in fact uh, abducted by aliens, or perhaps we can uh, he can um, put his mind at ease that he was not. In any event, we have that to look forward to uh, next Sunday on this uh, very program. Thank you for joining me uh, tonight. My thanks to uh, Andrew Bashago, of course, for that mind blowing conversation. Dan Elson, thank you. And in the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.